This episode of Long Reads is brought to you by our comrades at Haymarket Books. One title from Haymarket that you might enjoy is Coup, A Story of Violence and Resistance in Bolivia by Linda Farthing and Thomas Becker. The book offers an account of the 2019 coup against Evo Morales and its repressive aftermath before the mass party returned to power. Brazil's former president Lula has described coup as a vital contribution to the struggles of the peoples of the Americas. You can find coup at haymarketbooks.org where readers in the US and the UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. After the great hopes of 2011, the democratic uprisings in North Africa and the Middle East appear to have been snuffed out. Then a second wave of protest engulfed some of the regimes that had been left untouched in 2011. This report on Algeria from Franz van Katter in March 2019 tracked the burgeoning demonstrations against the rule of Abdelaziz Bouteflika. They wanted an election without Bouteflika. Now they have Bouteflika without an election. Celebrations over the president's decision not to seek a fifth term have quickly given way to scepticism and anger among Algerians. Hundreds of thousands have once again taken to the streets, protesting for the fourth Friday in a row. This fourth protest is to say no to all the changes that have been made recently. To say to this government and to this system that it's over for them. That's it. He said in his last statement that he's listened to the people Therefore, he's no longer running for a fifth term. But today, we're saying no to the extension of his fourth term. President Abdelaziz Bouteflika announced on Monday he was no longer seeking a fifth term in office, but that he was postponing the presidential election in April. The 82-year-old leader says this is to allow for consultation on a number of political reforms, but critics have condemned the move, saying it's a trick to divide Algerians. I actually thank Bouteflika for keeping Algerians mobilized and bringing us together. The Algerian protesters eventually forced Bouteflika to step down. But in Algeria, as in other countries, the COVID-19 pandemic intervened before the protest movement could overturn the fundamental power structures. Al Jazeera reported on parliamentary elections held last June that were widely seen as a hollow exercise. Less than a quarter of the electorate turned out to vote. Algerians have been promised a new Algeria by President Abdelmajid Taboun. But for many, the first legislative election since protesters pushed out his predecessor in 2019 are heading for the same outcome, preserving the political status quo in their country. It turns out that Algerians have confirmed that for them, elections have never been a solution. That's why they boycott them. Now there are calls for a boycott, which could give Muslim parties a boost. I do not have a voting card, and in any case, even if I had one, I would not vote. I guess today for a conversation about the second wave of Arab uprisings and the possibility of a third is Gilbert Achkar. He's a professor of development studies at SOAS in London. The second edition of his book, The People Want, a radical exploration of the Arab uprising, has just been published. This conversation was recorded in February of this year. 
After the initial wave of rebellions in North Africa and the Middle East from 2011 onwards, the overall picture seemed to be very bleak, a picture of civil war, foreign military intervention, or the consolidation of new dictatorships that were more repressive than the old ones that had been removed from power. But then from the end of 2018, there was a fresh wave of protest that challenged authoritarian regimes such as those in Algeria and Sudan. Were you surprised by that resurgence or did you think that it was only a matter of time before something like this happened? I wasn't surprised in the sense that I have been insisting from the very beginning, from uh, 2011, that this was a protracted process, a long-term revolutionary process, like we have seen actually uh, many times in history, especially when you're dealing with a whole geopolitical uh, area. Think of uh, Western Europe and uh, the so-called democratic revolutions or bourgeois revolutionary process over the, the 18th, 19th century. You have a protracted process with a lot of ups and downs. You had a major wave uh, shaking the whole region in 1848 with its aftermath. It ended with a lot of defeats, wars, revolutions, counter-revolutions, civil wars, you know, uh, this whole gamut of, of uh, events, and that's what the region we are discussing is going through and will carry on going through from the moment we identify the reasons for the explosion in 2011, which were, above all, a matter of a deep social, economic, structural crisis. Nothing that you could uh, solve by with just, uh, I don't know, uh, shifting from uh, authoritarianism or even dictatorship to electoral democracy. The 2011 country that, uh, that had done the most in that regard in terms of change was Tunisia, uh, which is the country which happens to be the country where everything started. It is on uh, December 2010 that a young man set himself on fire in central Tunisia, in an impoverished part of Tunisia. That was 17 December 2010, and that is what uh, triggered in, in his own country the revolutionary wave, and then this revolutionary wave extended to, to the whole region. The following clip from Euronews marked the 10th anniversary of the revolt in Tunisia. A 26-year-old fruit seller self-immolated in front of a government building in the town of Sidi Bouzid, sparking hundreds of thousands to heed his cry for change. Tunisians protested against unemployment, poverty and overall hopelessness and against the men they held responsible for their woes. Ten years on, most of those who fought for change will tell you the country is nowhere near the prosperous and fair nation they hoped for. What changed during those ten years is that one minister or one president replaced another, but the system remained the same. All that remains is the slogan, work, freedom and national dignity. This is what we heard during the revolution. We didn't witness any of those things. Maybe only freedom, but it's not really that. It is freedom of press. But what does it really mean for a citizen? Does he have a job? No, he doesn't. Now, Tunisia shifted at that point, 2010, and in what 
appeared or looked like a lasting success, it shifted into, well, real, let's say, democratic conditions, if you compare them to the environment, uh, real political freedoms, elections, um, a constitutional process, uh, and the rest. And yet, of course, all these issues did not address the main problem, the, the key problem, the, 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 the root cause of everything that happened, which is this, uh, the social economic crisis, the, the, this problem of, of what I call fettered development that characterizes this whole part of the world, actually, with the low rate of growth translating in record rates of youth unemployment, the highest rates of youth unemployment of any region in the world. And this is definitely the most important clue to the nature of the crisis and therefore the requirements, if you want, what needs to be addressed and solved for the crisis to end. And uh, and that's not uh, resolved by democracy alone. Of course, democracy is a very important issue and uh, definitely a very important demand. But we have seen in Tunisia an excellent illustration of that. We have seen this country, which uh, supposedly had solved that, that, that problem by getting democracy. And we have seen this population that had fought for democracy and managed to be the first at least for a very long time in the region, to overthrow a dictator through popular movement. We have seen uh, this country and this population just a few months ago in, in, 20, uh, in July 2021 uh, go through exactly the reverse. I mean, in the sense that you had a presidential coup, a kind of uh, Bonapartist coup, executed or ordered by, by the, the president, dissolving the parliament and the rest, and uh, setting up conditions that uh, are undemocratic, completely undemocratic. It's, uh, it's uh, I mean, uh, the, some conditions for an authoritarian rule. And uh, this was met with big uh, uh, popular support. Undeniably, he, he achieved this with popular support. Now, we know that, uh, I mean, it's not the first instance in history where you may find popular support for uh, for a coup or for a dictatorial uh, move. Uh, but what is the reason for that? Well, the reason for that is that the, the, the people got completely exceeded by the continuous worsening of the social economic crisis, the continuous worsening of all the economic social and social parameters, uh, unemployment <clears throat> being uh, one of them, and also, therefore, on that background, uh, the, 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 the spectacle of this uh, parliamentary democracy, but uh, which was discussing anything but the real issues, this got the people, you know, uh, therefore into, into such positions. So that shows you that actually the core problem, the root problem of all, all that existed was this social economic crisis. And hence, once you have this kind of perspective, you understand that 2011, therefore what was called the Arab Spring, well, that was just the initial moment, uh, the, the initial moment of a protracted historical process. And I'm still expecting, actually, further waves, I mean, further upsurges. And therefore you had one indeed, 
eight years later, if the first one started in December 2010, the second started in, uh, well, that was in Tunisia, the second started in December 2018 in Sudan. And we've seen in the, in the year that, that followed in 2019, three other countries going through major uh, uprisings. Uh, those were Algeria, Iraq, and Lebanon on a background of, of social economic crisis in these countries and political, of course, political crisis. And this time, the second wave, it has been defeated in, uh, in Algeria, where the, the, the military dictatorship is cracking down on those who, who were the most active in the, uh, in the popular uh, movement there. It's been defeated in Lebanon. It's been defeated in Iraq, uh, although, of course, in these two countries, or especially in Iraq, you, you still have uh, some kind of potential simmering. And the only country that is, for now, that is uh, resisting, uh, the only popular movement that is uh, still uh, fighting and reject, refusing the, the, the attempt at subduing it is Sudan. Uh, because Sudan also had a coup last uh, October, October 2021. The military tried to stop the, the so-called transition there and revert to uh, full control of political power. But they were met with, uh, with a huge popular resistance. And at the time of our uh, discussion, they, this is still going on very stubbornly. So this is the only country still fighting, if you want, in, in that regard. So that shows you how complicated it is. But of course, the kind of transformation that is required to address the, 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 the root crisis, to, it would have been very illusory to expect uh, to, this to happen uh, quickly and smoothly. Looking at Sudan in particular, that country formerly had one of the largest communist parties in the Arab world, would you say that political organizational legacy was a significant factor in the genesis of the contemporary Sudanese movements? Oh, it definitely was in the sense that the fact that you had a strong, large Communist Party, actually one of the largest in the world during the 60s in particular, got repressed in the 70s, there has been a, a tradition, if you want, some kind of communist tradition in the country, that, that definitely played a role. This musical recording is taken from the 40th anniversary celebration of the Sudanese Communist Party in 1986. It was held during a brief period of political openness, after the fall of one military regime and before the rise of another. The impact of the communist movement, the communist party in Sudan, is uh, quite strong, whether through the really existing party itself, if you want, or through the, the number of people. That, 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 I mean, I, when I visited Sudan, I was struck by the, the number of people who had been through the communist party. So that indicates, if you want, um, the existence of a left-wing tradition. Uh, of which the Communist Party is part, but it's not only the Communist Party in the sense of the narrow sense of the members of the Communist Party. It's uh, much larger than that. So there is a left-wing tradition, a strong one, 
but uh, I should say that uh, the, 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 the most uh, original and striking phenomenon that uh, I encountered, I visited Sudan in, in February 2020, and uh, I wrote an article about that, that emphasized the importance of the resistance committees, and the, the phenomenon of the resistance committees. Actually, when, when I went to Sudan, I hadn't read anything about that. And uh, there I was struck by uh, the, the importance of this, which uh, hadn't been reported in the, in the press, in the media. There was a lot of talk about the um, freedom and the change uh, declaration, the forces of freedom of, uh, and change, which is the, this coalition of, uh, of opposition groups and parties that uh, was formed uh, very beginning of uh, 2019 and became the, the kind of political uh, leadership of the movement facing the, the military and the, the interlocutor, if you want, of the military in, in representing the popular movement. So you had things about the, this um, freedom and change uh, uh, coalition. Uh, you found uh, reports about, uh, of course, the Sudanese Professional Association, which played a remarkable role because it was, um, well, uh, it was named professional because initially there were professionals like uh, doctors, um, lawyers, uh, and also teachers. This was formed in clandestinity. It was illegal. It was formed underground and played an important role as uh, when the, the uprising started in uh, December uh, 2018, and uh, then became the, the nucleus of a recomposition, uh, or a re- rebirth of the workers' movement, of the whole labor movement in the country, and is still one of the most important leading bodies of the popular movement. So you, you had reports about these because they fit into what people know generally of the, the kind of um, organization they would expect. So one political coalition, one union-like, uh, labor-like uh, organization or coalition also. But you, you hardly found anything about the resistance committee uh, committees. And when I went there, I, I met, uh, so I started exploring that, and I, I found that this was actually the real spearhead of what was going on, what had been going on. You had this fantastic uh, horizontal organization of young people. It's essentially a youth uh, youth movement with uh, massive numbers. We're not speaking of, of, uh, of tens uh, or, or hundreds or, or thousands. We are speaking of, of tens of thousands and even more at the scale of the whole country. And that was absolutely remarkable. I, I met uh, members of these... Uh, of several of these resistance committees, I saw the, their extent, um, and they told me about their their forms of organization, which uh, I mean displays some allergy, which at the same time was a problem, may become a problem to to verticalism. I mean they are very horizontal; they don't have any central leadership. They coordinate through social media and such technology, and of course they they are. The, the, the radical wing of all that, uh, very much dedicated to the, 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 the at least the, the central goals of the, the whole upheaval, uh, which is first and above all, get rid of military dictatorship, real civilian democratic rule, and social issues 
to which they are also dedicated because they are not only committees of uh, political action, they are committees of also of, for social actions. They organized services. I mean, when I was there, there, there was problems of... Uh, uh, with the provision of fuel or, or bread and issues like that, and they organized, you know, they they they, they organized the, the provision of these services in the fairer possible way and the most organized way, and this is also, I mean, that was part of what they were doing, and that is one of the reason of of their uh, popularity, if you want. So yes, um, there are a number of issues in Sudan that um, make this country the country with the the most advanced form of radical movement and mass movement in general, the most advanced forms of mobilization. And that explains why they are carrying on the battle and uh, the military have not been able to to get rid of them, to to suppress uh, the movement despite their, their attempt. This doesn't mean, of course, that uh, it won't happen. I mean, who knows? It's a very uh, difficult situation. They are, they are facing very, I mean, a military dictatorship that has been uh, entrenched there in over 30 years, you know, and that has developed all forms, all sorts of privileges, uh, including a whole economic sector for its own and the rest it's very difficult to get rid of them. So that's why you have a kind of stalemate now with the military on the one hand failing in until now in, in suppressing the, the popular movement and the popular movement spearheaded by the resistance committees and also, the, of course, Sudanese Professional Association and the, the Freedom and Change Coalition are, are part of the movement countering the military and, uh, and demanding their resignation. The dressing on Ahmed Ismat's cheek covers a wound caused by a tear gas canister. This Reuters news report from earlier this year includes an interview with a member of the resistance committees. They came to prominence in the uprising that ousted Omar al-Bashir three years ago. An October 25th military coup has propelled them back to the front lines. But behind the scenes, they're also drafting a charter. The aim to turn grassroots activism into a political movement with broad appeal. The Resistance Committee Charter will represent the bare minimum of our demands and the basic structure of what we want the state to implement. But it will be a very detailed document. The key uh, to the situation is what happens with the armed forces themselves. That is, whether the, the, the popular movement manages to attract, to draw to its side, to win over the hearts and minds of the, 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 the troops, the, the rank and file, to the point of at least, you know, splitting or, you know, paralyzing the, the armed apparatuses. That's the question. But the key point is that it has been remarkably fighting. And uh, this is a result of this whole tradition we started with the, the, the communist tradition. That's an important uh, component of the political scene there. But it, it, it's not only that. It's uh, the whole uh, radicality, I would say, of, uh, of the popular movement there, which is amazing. 
What was the nature of the protest movement that developed in your own country, Lebanon? And how would you say the terrain of political action is affected or has been affected by the peculiar nature of the Lebanese political system? The movement started on a background of uh, rapidly deteriorating economic conditions. The country had been run by a bunch of profiteers and uh, banking system which is uh, uh, totally exploitative, uh, b- very speculative kind of, of banking system. And uh, uh, for the, the almost, again here, uh, 30 years since uh, 1990, uh, after the civil war, the, the long civil war in that country the, from 1975 to 1990. So after that, you had a reconstruction, but under completely uh, neoliberal um, conditions, and that was the 90s, where the, the the peak of the spread of the neoliberal paradigm globally. And uh, Lebanon had already uh, one of the wildest form of capitalism um, from the very start. I mean, it was a kind of fiscal paradise and all that uh, country for money laundering and the rest. And so you had a extremely flawed economic system, and that started collapsing when the the, the uprising happened in October uh, 2019. Now, uh, Lebanon, as uh, known for those at least who follow uh, the, the events in that part of the world, has had a sectarian system for very long. The political system is is based on sectarianism or communitarianism. That is, uh, representation of, uh, of of religious communities uh, in all political institutions. They have to be represented according to some proportionality. There are there are quotas, if you want, for for the the various religious communities. It's a, it's a quite backward uh, political system based on these on this uh, sectarianism. And sectarianism has been a, a tool of the, the 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 ruling class, if you want to 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 control the society, to prevent class struggle from developing, and by sowing divisions on the basis of religious sectarianism. So, what was remarkable in the uh, uprising of uh, October twenty nineteen was that uh, it was the first for very long time in Lebanon, which uh, was really encompassing the whole country, all parts of Lebanon, and all communities of Lebanon. And um, that also translated in the fact that one of the central slogan of this uprising was, all of them means all of them. And that was a way to say, and I mean, for the popular movement to say, we want to get rid of all of them. That is, all members, all sections, all parts of the ruling class, to whichever sect they belong to, whichever uh, political uh, family or group they, they belong, as long as they are part of the system, we want to get rid of all of them. We have had enough of all of them. Sky News reported on the Lebanese protest movement in October 2019. The autumn storms did nothing to put the people off. Instead, they gathered through the day again in huge numbers. 
This is Beirut's Martyrs Square, the road outside the mosque, one focus for a countrywide movement that cuts across religion and politics. For a week now, under their national flag, their call has been for the complete removal of the government. This is the road north out of Beirut. Like so many, it's blocked peacefully by the people. There is a bizarre silence from the politicians they want out, leaving the army on the streets and it seems not quite sure what to do. At the moment, the military and by extension the government are, are doing nothing uh, to take the protesters off the streets. By evening, the rain in Beirut had stopped and the numbers had grown again. Why is this such a huge moment? Because uh, it's all from all Lebanon and every religion are uh, together. We don't have rights anymore as, as people. We're lacking a lot of rights and everything. And everything that we do, we're working for nothing. We're, we're actually leaving our country to be able to have rights outside, abroad, because we don't have our rights here. That was great, inspiring and the rest. But, uh, you know, reality is... Uh, <laughs> doesn't conform to uh, just, uh, I mean, matters of hopes and all that. Uh, you, you may have moments of uh, joy, happiness, because you believe that what you were, you, you, you hope for so much is happening, but then uh, you realize that, uh, well, uh, it would take uh, much more than just a spontaneous uprising, you know, to change a system, to get rid of all of them, as the slogan went. The system went on the counter-offensive after a while and uh, tried to, to repress the movement on the one hand, break it by reviving the, the sectarian divisions, and at the same time, the vertiginous economic deterioration, the crisis. I mean, the, there has been a World Bank Group report on the economic crisis in Lebanon, describing it as one of the three worst economic crises in the history of capitalism. I mean, that's not the term they use. They say since the, the 19th century. And of course, that is an element that in itself can break a movement because people find themselves, you know, they have to, to, to cater for their needs, their families, their kids, and things like that. And they, they suddenly get impoverished in a terrible manner. You know, the, the people have seen their uh, income divided by more than 10 they see themselves with a purchase power that has that becomes suddenly, in a matter of few months, one tenth of what it was. Uh, a huge lot of people find themselves unemployed. The people below the poverty line, the, the proportion of people below the poverty line in Lebanon, which was before the crisis, twenty five percent, trebled. It's almost three quarters of the population that have become below the poverty line. So that's another factor, and. There is the factor, that the one that I wanted to mention, which actually applies to all the countries of the second wave. And that counter-revolutionary factor is called COVID-19. Because the pandemic, of course, played a key role also in ending the movements. At some point, at the beginning of 2020, with the pandemic and all that, it became more and more dangerous for people to go in, in mass gatherings. They had to stop. And the governments used uh, the, the opportunity to order them to stop. Uh, if you take Algeria, it's very clear the, 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 the pandemic was uh, the key factor allowing the Algerian military to stop the movement, which had taken some kind of cruise speed 
uh, where you had uh, weekly demonstrations, huge mass demonstrations, they managed to stop that in the name of uh, of uh, fighting the pandemic. Uh, so that's also a factor. Al Jazeera reported last year on a fresh outbreak of protest in Lebanon as its people face a dire economic crisis. These young men say they've run out of options and that's why they've returned to the streets. Lebanon's economy has all but collapsed. We are hungry and tired. Buying milk for our children is a dream. We are living a life of humiliation. There is no end in sight for the financial meltdown. The country needs international financial assistance, but politicians are not reforming a state riddled with corruption. The politicians are destroying us. They made us poor. These young men don't have jobs. The crisis is not new, but it's got worse because the government lifted its subsidies on essential goods due to a lack of foreign reserves. The fallout of the economic collapse has left three-fourths of the population poor. And the United Nations is warning of even worse conditions if no solutions are found. How did the protests in Iraq against the post-occupation system and its political class take shape? Now, Iraq, the popular uh, revolt there, was again after an accumulation of social economic problems and deep uh, failure, inefficiency of the, 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 the government to cater for basic needs of the population, including uh, basic services like electricity and the rest. So there was a, a mounting anger in the country that had been developing for, for a few years, which uh, suddenly in uh, October, again, it was October 2019, exploded. And of course, the, I mean, these movements, uh, they are inspired by each other. The, 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 the Algerian were certainly inspired by, by the Sudanese rising up against their military. So the Algerian rise, rose up against their military. And the Iraqi uh, were certainly impressed by, by seeing those big mass movements. They were fighting for social economic issue against those uh, profiteers and uh, exploiters that uh, were dominant uh, social forces in the country. And also... For Iraq, it was also a matter of rejecting both U.S. and Iranian domination over the country. They got fed up. I mean, Lebanon, as I said, is also more or less in, in that kind of situation. But in Iraq, it's is, is quite clear how the country has been under the two dominations of, of the United States and Iran, rivals, but at some times cooperating if you, you take the whole history since 2003, since the beginning of the occupation of Iraq. Hundreds dead, tens of thousands injured, dozens of activists assassinated or abducted, and only one resignation. That is the result of three months of anti-government protests in Iraq. This report from Al Jazeera looked at the experience of Iraq's protest movement at the end of 2019. In Baghdad's Tahrir Square, the epicentre of protests, some people call this a revolution. They want the entire political class to leave. Across the bridge in the fortified green zone, politicians offer token concessions as they cling on to power. All of the candidates put forward by major political parties to replace Prime Minister Adel Abdel Mahdi have been firmly rejected, seen as the product of a political system that has failed the people. 
What the demonstrators say about the candidates cannot be disregarded. We put down our conditions and we sent them to the politicians and all the world. The protests have galvanized Iraqis from all walks of life. Muslims, Christians, the elderly, women and the youth, all united by demands for a just and sovereign government that serves its people regardless of religion, sect and status. I demand my rights. I'm a student and I want a good future for myself. I hope there will be change for the better in the country and the schools will improve. The majority of demonstrators came of age in the post-Saddam era, but after promises of democracy, they feel let down. The reality of education is that, first of all, we're in 2019 and there are schools built of mud. In 2019, there are over 100 students in one class. A student can't learn in an environment like this. You had also a resentment developing against uh, the two regimes and the forces they, they represent locally now. The most important were those militias, uh, those armed groups uh, linked to, to Iran, and uh, they, they played a, a key role in repressing the movement. So you had a repression of the movement, which uh, exploited the COVID uh, factor, if you want. And so the movement uh, declined. The regime, the system tried to reorganize uh, later on uh, new elections to, so therefore to, to put the, the country on this electoral track in order to defuse the revolution, the mass revolt, the, the uprising. The movement lost the steam, the popular movement. Now, it doesn't mean that uh, it's dead. The re- revolt is, is simmering every now and then. You can see signs of that. And sooner or later, in Iraq or in any of the countries we mentioned until now, and all the countries of the region, you will have new upsurges. That's absolutely inevitable because the social economic crisis, far from being uh, uh, solved or, or declining in intensity, is actually worsening. It keeps worsening and therefore Anyone expecting uh, this part of the world to find any political stability, social political stability in the near future is just uh, completely dreaming. You've spoken at the beginning of this interview and in many of your writings about the social and economic blockages in North Africa and the Middle East, the problem of endemic unemployment, especially youth unemployment, as factors that are underpinning these successive waves of revolt. Looking forward, looking ahead, what do you think are the long-term prospects for social and economic development in the region? Is a political transformation a necessary precondition for any progress on the social and economic front? It's not a matter of economic policy. You know, it's not a matter of... uh, steering the economy in a different direction with the same people in power. It's a deeply rooted structural crisis and uh, it requires for its solution structural change. And structural change means social political change. That is a change in the, in the social political nature of government. You really need a radical change, a radical social, economic and political change, not only, as I said at the beginning, uh, not only democratization uh, superficially, that is um, just uh, removing, uh, as you had in some countries, a segment of, of, of the ruling class, 
keeping the bulk of the ruling class and reorganizing the way it functions from uh, from dictatorial to uh, to to democratic but remaining within what is basically the continuation of the same economic political rule what is needed is much more radical change than that and that requires precisely that requires Uh, forms of organization of the popular movement, deeply rooted in the popular movement, uh, the labor movement, the laboring masses uh, should be represented politically by political forces, political organizations, and these organizations should become the real uh, holders of, of power, of course, through democracy in representing the majority. You really need that kind of, of change in order to change the whole economic conditions and put back the public sector as the, 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 the real main locomotive of development and change. And that means, in other words, a complete reversal of the whole neoliberal perspective, but uh, going not, not going back to the kind of... Uh, bureaucratic or dictatorial developmentalism that uh, you had prior to that, but something uh, really new in the forms of, of, uh, of democratic control. Because when you have state-led de- development uh, without democratic control, well, you, you, you quickly get all the, the problems of um, of uh, of bureaucracy and corruption and the rest and that that leads also to to failure so the the, the region has been through in the 60s uh, it was one of the world regions where you had the highest concentration of uh, radical nationalist regimes populist regimes if you want to use that label but left wing left leaning regimes they all proclaimed socialism Uh, the, what they called socialism, but uh, they, they uh, nationalized the bulk of the uh, economy, at least the industrial economies in their countries, and uh, they tried to implement developmental perspectives uh, of industrialization and the rest. So the region had gone through that, but that was at the same time that was the fe- defeat of dictatorial regimes, military dictatorships, or uh, security military kind of dictatorships, depending on the country, the police, the part, single party rule. And they uh, achieved real advances, real progresses in, in, in several fields, but they quickly uh, ran into quicksands because of their bureaucratic dictatorial kind. Egypt had been in the vanguard of Arab socialism during the 1960s. But after the death of the country's leader Nasser in 1970, his successor Anwar Sadat turned away from the policies that defined Nasserism. Sadat broke the alliance with the Soviet Union and turned to Washington for support. At the same time, he began promoting economic liberalization over state-led development. President Sadat is a man of many plans. He dreams of vast cities in the sand, of a new Egypt, rich and powerful and free a wonder of the world by the year 2000. In this interview with the British TV programme from 1977, Sadat set out his economic thinking. President Sadat proposes peace, free enterprise, a new ally, America, and repudiation of the policies of his predecessor, the father of modern Egypt, Gamil Abdel Nasser. 
I don't think any president came in Egypt here or in any other uh, country in the third world has faced what I am facing. The experience of socialism that we had here, it has been proved wrong and it has uh, made our country reach a very uh, miserable state. You've promised a great deal to your countrymen. Do you ever feel that you're making rather rash promises? Uh, as you know, we have started this year with $2 billion from the uh, Gulf Fund to straighten our economy. Uh, next year, we shall be having uh, about the same amount until 1980. Uh, after that, uh, uh, our economy will be, uh, I mean, uh, quite solid for the takeoff. Uh, so I'm not dreaming at all. I'm not speaking from uh, hopes or, uh, or dreams, not at all. We were backward. So I'm trying my best to, to uh, uh, reconstruct. And believe me, I'm starting from zero. How can I build it with such a very high military expenditure? For that, I'm, I'm really asking for peace. And I'm working for peace. And then you had the shift from that into the, the neoliberal transformation and the dismantling first of, of all the state capitalism that had developed in the region into refavoring uh, private capitalism and the rest. And uh, this is what, uh, what led under the conditions that you, you have in the region to the present crisis, this deep social economic crisis. So basically what is required to solve all this is a new phase in which you would have forces representing programs of pro-poor, pro-people, pro if you want, pro-workers, pro pro-peasants development, but uh, in a framework of, of, uh, of democratic control, of control from below. That's absolutely crucial and essential for real progress to be, to, to be made. So we are, in a word... Uh, speaking of, of the kind of uh, changes that uh, people are on the left, on the radical left, aspire to anywhere in the world. And that's one part of the world where the situation had, has got so, so much blocked that there is no way out of the blockage really without that kind of radical change. As a final question, looking in particular at the situation of the Arab left or the left understood in a plural sense, perhaps, with different ideologies and different organisational forms. After coming out of a period when the traditional left-wing forces, communist and otherwise, were driven back over the course of the 1960s, 70s and 80s into a very marginal, defeated, isolated position, and then coming into the period of the last decade and more, in the first wave of uprisings in 2011, there was a role played by left-wing activists and organisations in places like Egypt and Tunisia. And more recently, you've described the role of that tradition or those activists in a country like Sudan. Overall, how would you describe the situation of the Arab left-wing forces more than a decade after the initial wave of revolt began? over the course of all the experiences that they've been through and that the wider region and its people have been through, would you say that any consensus has begun to develop about questions of ideology, political tactics, 
or the right approach to organization? Well, I would say that with the collapse of the Soviet Union, you had at the same time a deep crisis of of the left uh, almost everywhere. So much of of the left uh, saw in the Soviet Union as the formula went at that time, the fatherland of socialism, you know. So when when all this collapsed, this affected uh, the credibility of uh, the very credibility of the left or or, of all those advocating socialism, especially the Marxists among them, and of course the communist parties. Since then, that left, this 20th century left, past century left, if you want, got very much weakened. And I would say it, it, it's clinically dead, uh, basically, with very few exceptions. The Sudanese Communist Party has still uh, some vigor. And actually, even in that party, you, you find um, a real discrepancy between the grassroots and uh, the, the leadership. <laughs> I met a lot of young communist members who were not satisfied with the leadership of their party, uh, believing that it doesn't represent what they what they, they wish. The Lebanese Communist Party went into very deep crisis in the 90s and since then. The party recuperated a, uh, somewhat and is playing uh, an important role in the, po- in the social popular movement also in Lebanon. So you have these two countries, Sudan and to a lesser degree in terms of uh, balance of forces or or impact, Lebanon, you may find also some communists even in Iraq, despite the the terrible uh, uh, history of of that party that collaborated in some way with the the U.S. occupation. I mean, they did not fight against it. Even then, you find them uh, as part of the social movement, as part of the popular movement. So you have these forces, but in other countries... The left is very weak, very marginal, and that includes big countries. I mean, if you take uh, Egypt or uh, Algeria, or so you have a, a marginal uh, left, but uh, no major forces that are uh, left-wing forces with a real big impact in the social movement. You don't have that. I'm looking forward to is is the emergence of uh, of of new forms like the, the those resistance committees that we mentioned in Sudan. I mean, this extreme rejection of centralism, of Caudism, uh, uh, if you want, of uh, uh, anyone proclaiming themselves to leaders or whatever. This uh, insistence on 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 coordinating uh, horizontally. Uh, of course, consulting among themselves and all that, but acting in, in, in the most democratic manner, uh, that's quite interesting. So it will take the, 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 the building of a new form of, of left-wing, radi- radical left forces, exposing the, the, these uh, forms, these democratic forms, but I hope also managing to function democratically and organize themselves in a way that would allow them to really be effective. And for that, you need some degree of uh, central coordination. I wouldn't say centralism, but at least some degree of uh, common decision to act in common. So this will be the challenge. And at the same time, also the there is uh, an interest in the new generation in Marxism, in in, in the social critique and the political critique uh, that Marxism represents, there is a real interest in that. 
uh, and people are rediscovering that and uh, uh, without confusing it with uh, the Soviet Union or whatever such experience. You know, we, <laughs> I will end here by uh, a distinction, the distinction between optimism and hope. You know, there's not much uh, ground, to be frank, for optimism, not only for the, 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 the Arab countries. If you look at the state of the world, if you st- look at the climate problems, if you look at a number of issues, uh, the rise of the far right and all this, uh, there is no ground. For, I mean, how, how could one be optimistic uh, when facing such conditions? So there is little ground for optimism, really. But uh, one shouldn't confuse optimism with hope. And uh, there is ground for hope. Hope is different. Hope means that uh, we know that there is a potential for something very different. And there is a real potential for change. Optimism would be the belief that this will prevail. No, you can't uh, believe such a thing. And actually, to mention a well-known formula here, the pessimism of the intellect imposes itself when looking at the the conditions. Now, if you want to have an optimism of the will, uh, as the formula goes, you really need one factor that is not mentioned in the formula, which is hope. That is, you really need hope. That is the the conviction that it is possible to change. Or as the the global justice movement put it, another world is possible. Uh, This slogan means the other world will happen. It is It is possible. It's a potential. Whether this happens or not depends on, on us all, and especially on the new generation, ability to organize and fight in such a way as to manage to implement that needed change. Many thanks to Gilbert Achkar for that account of Middle Eastern politics. The new edition of his book, The People Want, is now out from Saki, 